Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, hope you're well. This week I'm going to be interviewing the very lovely Nikki Arrowsmith. Uh, Nikki and I never worked together, but we've got a very good mutual friend, uh, John. Uh, Nikki used to work with him and John and I went to training school at Hendon together many, many years ago. So Nikki is, uh, as well as being a thoroughly lovely person, she is extremely knowledgeable about all things to do with the investigation of sexual offences. So, we'll come on to that in a little minute. Before we do, um, the more eagle-eared amongst you will have noticed the new intro music. I was getting a bit fed up with the music, much as it was very uh, kind of my friend Louise to do the singing for it, but I just felt that I want to kind of move away from the grumbling about Theresa May thing a little bit. I think I've done that to death. So I felt it was time for a little bit of a change. So I've really enjoyed actually messing about with GarageBand. And um, yeah, it's an amazing bit of software. So I'm going to do a few different little intro music, um, bits of intro music over the next few weeks. And um, yeah, let me know what you think. Right, let's get into the interview with Nikki. Hey, there you are. Hiya, Ian. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Are you having a few technical issues? I, I always do at home, which is ridiculous. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's the... Is it uh, your Wi-Fi? Many, many problems. Yeah, my Wi-Fi's rubbish. I pay top whack with BT. Oh, really? I never sort it out. Yeah, but I've, I've been with nearly everyone else. and Oh, bloody hell. Easy. You're starting to take it personally now. Sort of, yeah. I have done all my life. <laughs> <laughs> Are you gonna? Do you want to put your camera on? Can you put your camera on, or is that is that? Uh... I can. Yeah, 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 yeah. Quite sunny in my. Uh... Don't worry. It just makes it a bit more natural, doesn't it? Yeah. And then, oh bloody hell! Look at you. You've got there. You are. Hey, <laughs> look at yours. Look at yours. It's back. I haven't put makeup on. And, look at uh, yours, summery looking and everything. Uh, hopefully, I hope that light isn't a problem. Summer, um, uh, summer's obviously arrived where you are. Flipping yeah, it. Well, it's lovely today. It's a lovely day. Sadly, I haven't been out yet. So. Um, oh bless you. So how are you doing? Are you all right? I'm okay. Yeah, not too bad. Excellent. Yeah, but good. All good. 
yeah, yeah. So how's um how's retirement? Uh, not that judging from your LinkedIn profile, uh, I don't think you're doing retirement, are you? But uh, how's not? Okay, maybe rephrase that. How's not being in the police then? Oh, it's it's different. It's good, but it opens up, um, you know, a world of opportunity, really, and the chance to look at the world through a different set of eyes, I suppose, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Did you, um, how did you feel about leaving? Did you find that an emotional wrench or were you looking forward to it? Um, I left feeling quite high. So I was on a bit of a high, you know, left at the right time. Yeah. Uh, I, I had an idea of the sort of thing I'd like to do next. Mm. Um, I think because it was during COVID and various different restrictions and lockdown. Yeah. I, um, you know, I had no choice but to get on with it and just, um, you know, do a bit of work as well, but very part time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got yeah. to say, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I'd left before COVID started because judging from, um, you know, speaking to colleagues who were still there and trying to, I mean, it was hard. It's been hard enough, hasn't it, for the last sort of, I don't know, five or ten years generally for all sorts of reasons. But, um, but yeah, I think particularly because of COVID, it must have been a bloody nightmare, was it? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, so my, my last year, um, so I was Detective Super at Lambeth and Southwark, um, the head of CID, and all of a sudden in the March, COVID struck, and we're to think how we were going to do things differently and manage it and um, yeah, yeah. You know, try and manage the spread. And you don't really know what you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. But you've also got to make sure that you have enough resource and, mm. you know, to to deal with what's coming through the door, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prisoners and incidents and critical incidents. Um, and that's a busy old, busy old part of London, isn't it? It is a really busy part of London, yeah. A lot of uh, gang violence in both Lambeth and Southwark and um, robbery, um, you know, probably in the Met, probably fourth out of the 12 BCUs, as they know now, the basic command units. Right. Uh, for, for robbery offending, um, which really is is youth crime. And then yeah, yeah. knife crime an issue and quite a few homicides as well so uh... so you were obviously every force is different isn't it and um you know uh it's configured differently with with your cid because in the west mids where i where i was you know at the end of my career mm. they went from a very dispersed sort of geographical cid response um you know which was the cid resources were owned by the local chief superintendents yeah. uh, and then it went to a centralized model where where it was all sort of run from headquarters and um so no local units actually owned their own detectives how, 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 how does it work in the met um so the met went down from the boroughs, the 32 boroughs down to 12 BCUs, and it varies. Um, some BCUs are have four boroughs. Right. Um, uh, Wandsworth and Merton. Uh, and then you've got my, my old borough, well, my last borough BCU was Lambeth and Southwark, so yeah. geographically. They're sitting next door to each other, but you might have um, different, you know, councils from different political parties. Right. 
So, you know, for example, when I was a DCI, I, I had Sutton, Bromley um, and Coyden. Uh, so you've got the liberal conservatives of uh, Bromley and then Croydon Labour. Yeah. And then you've got different uh, priority crime or different priorities for each borough. But then you've got your resources spread across each borough on your BCU. So, you know, for example, yeah. you know, sexual offences used to be a specialised command uh, with dedicated specialist detectives trained um yeah. you know along alongside the so it's and that that all went back to bcu um and what the, what they're finding now is you know um training development um probably went by the wayside right uh in my last few years it's what you did in the house yeah <laughs> um benefited on top of your day job, the detectives there, so that yeah, 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 you know, deliver a quality of service to the victim. Um, yeah. but yeah. uh, centralized training hasn't been consistent, probably in the Met, in my experience, for the last 10 years, in terms of investing in staff so that they can really deliver, yeah, top service to victims of crime in the public. So, I'd, I'd call it sort of diluted. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly I remember. So, um, so you and I, uh, I was, I was uh, sort of referred to you, I think, via a mutual friend, John Folks. So, so you used yeah. to work, you used to work with John. John was a DCI on the Sapphire teams, wasn't he? Which is sexual, yeah. sexual offences teams. And I remember John being very um, uh, despairing slightly about that decision because obviously investigating sexual offences is not like investigating robberies or burglaries or frauds or whatever so to sort of throw all of that resource into um, teams that dealt with kind of all sorts of other things as well was never I don't think was ever going to work probably. No no and um, you know it, it became specialist in the first place for the mm. right reasons you know, if a serial fell, um, offender like John Warboys, yeah. who was using his black cab to um, you know, procure w women and, and sexually assault them, and rape them in the back of his cab, um, you know, that wasn't picked up on and it was further offences weren't prevented. Yeah. But, you know, with the dawn of specialist crime or sexual offending going into specialist crime, you've also got the support of intelligence analysts and people that can pick up on these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a specialist area of business, isn't it? And, yeah. um, you know, and I talk uh, quite a lot in earlier podcasts about about um, sexual sex offenders and what, what makes them tick and how they sort of particularly around children, how they groom the victims and how they control the people around the victim and all of this kind of stuff. And if you don't understand this stuff, um, then how on earth are you ever going to give uh, a decent standard of service to a victim or the victim's family? It's just not going to work, is it? But so when them um, you join, you would have joined slightly. What year did you join? I joined in '93, November. But I'd, I'd been a a civilian for five years prior to that in the Met. Right. But I'd always, from um, sort of early teens, wanted to be a police officer. Right. 
various reasons. And what were you doing? What were you doing as a? Uh, I hate to use the, the word civvy. That sounds like sounds. I sound like such a dinosaur saying that, don't I? But um, what were you doing as a civvy, Nikki? Well, that's what they were called then. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, obviously, police staff. But that's that's what we were called then. Um. So I left school 16, 17. I wasn't overly academic, and didn't enjoy school. I wanted to follow a vocation and a passion. And um, yeah, I started at um, Jubilee House in Putney. My mum found me the job in the local paper, uh, possibly in the knowledge of knowing I wanted to be a police officer, but also probably in despair just to find me something to do when I left school. But um, yeah. I was an AA in uh, pensions branch. And then I found myself wanting to be um, bit more within a policing environment so I ended up at Kensington Police Station in uh, 19 it would have been 1991 on on the right. crime desk as right. an officer. Well that must yeah. have been a bit of a, sh a bit of a, a change wasn't it going yeah. from going from I mean no disrespect to anybody who works in pensions branch because it's an important job isn't it and but I don't imagine it's the most thrilling place to work does it? No, no. I mean, not my bag, really. Um, but it, it was a start. And I mean, the crime desk, it was it was staffed by a detective sergeant, a uniform sergeant, you had an analyst there and PCs used to have to do like a six month stint. So I was amongst, you know, the people that I wanted to work with. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it was within the CID main office as well. So that was interesting working with some of the detectives. Yeah, yeah. Some of them I don't know now. A lot of them are retired officers, but um it was a bit you know, like life um, on Mar life on Mars, was it? A little bit. It was really good. It was so interesting. And um yeah, it just really made me want to do it even more. And then from there I I went into the CAD room for a while uh, as a CAD room or control room operator. All right, okay. So you had a really good um grinding in lots of different things then, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I was around people that wanted to see me succeed in, you know, so it helped when I when I applied and eventually yeah, yeah. You know, so, so it was was it was it kind of always your intention to apply as an officer, uh, or was it a kind of a, a moment in time when you thought, you know, right, this is it? It was always my plan. Yeah, right, okay. I, I, I could have um, applied for the cadets, but the swimming element put me off. Oh, really? Um, I can swim, but I'm not a strong swimmer, so um, I, I think I opted for earning a little bit more money as a, a civvy, and uh, right. yeah, took it from there. Um, so did you I... end up uh, having to do your full 30 years or did you have some pension from being a member of police staff? So I carried some pension into the um, Met Police pension, um, right. which meant I went um, after 28 years. Right, OK. After 28 years, yeah, yeah. So when you joined and did your training at Hendon, like we all did, um, where did you go as your first sort of proper posting? Um, I went to, I wanted to go to Brixton, I always remember, and you got told your first day at Hendon uh, where you were going, and um, I was very disappointed to have been posted to Merton, so Wimbledon, Mitchell, right. Gordon in southwest London, and um, yeah, really disappointed, but as a probation I went to Mitchell, which you know, my di disappointment dissipated. Um, yeah, it's quite a lot. That can be quite lively, Mitchum, can't it? 
It it was, yeah, really, because you, you've got a lot of uh, resettled travelling community living in Mitcham, and then it borders uh, with Croydon as well, and then Morden and, yeah. and Wimbledon. So a real mix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I enjoyed it very much. And it was in the days where your response team or your relief um, mm. you worked the seven nights and then you had the quick changeover on the Monday, which was a killer. Mm. Um, but... Um, you also got to work with the sister team. So the days you weren't, you know, um, response, you were doing a home beat. And my first home beat was in Figs Marsh that borders on Satootin. Yeah. Um, so that was good. Uh, I used to quite enjoy going out patrolling and um, I enjoyed nicking people. And I actually enjoyed dealing with the people I nicked as well and in yeah. interviewing and, and getting them to court. Yeah, um, but it's funny because I worked uh, up that neck of the neck of the woods whenever I first joined as well, and I talk about that in my book where I went to. Uh, I was like you; I wanted to go be in the thick of it. I wanted to be in sort of um, you know one of the inner city um, nicks, and and then I got posted to Sutton, and I was absolutely gutted. Well, I I got posted to to Z District. I didn't know where I was going, and then I ended up um, at Sutton. And actually, it wasn't too bad. You know, it was quite a, like it was, you know, had its moments. It was could be quite busy, and it was, it was very varied, I suppose, because it was quite a sort of suburban area. But we had lots of, you know, so the top end of our ground was boarding onto Mitcham, as I recall. Um, so I used to do the um, when I was a probationer, I used to go up to um, Rose Hill. Do you remember Rose Hill? I used to, yeah. I used to hide. I used to hide behind the bus stops at Rose Hill to to um, do people for overtaking on the zebra crossings. <laughs> you got to get your pro. You got to get your process in, didn't you, as a probationer? Traffic yeah. process. If you didn't, you soon were told you weren't getting enough in. But I remember that well. <laughs> I know it's funny, isn't it? So, um, did how long did you stay at Mitcham for? I was at Mitcham for two years, uh, so I did my probation there, and then I, I kind of fell into um, going on a crime squad attachment for about three or four months in Morden. Right. So first taste of proactive work, applying for search warrants, um, going through doors, finding drugs, and mm -hmm. arresting people for various drug offences, theft offences. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Really interesting, enjoyable stuff, and that's when I I really felt like I had my own autonomy, really. Yeah, um, yeah. To, to focus on on crime and and sort of detecting crime as well. So that was the that was the beginning of your investigative career, then I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and I, it was never my plan. I always quite fancied going on the uh, TSG, the Territorial Support Group. Um, I really fancied it, but it just never happened. And mm. I sort of ended up following a path yeah. of uh, yeah. crime squad. I had a very brief stay after that on sector policing. Yeah. That came in, if I'm remembering right, with Paul, is it, was it Paul Condon? I don't know. I can't remember who brought in sector policing. I'm sure it was Paul Condon. Yeah, no, I think uh, you're right. Mission at the time. Yeah, but... Um, I think soon after that, I managed to get onto the burglary squad. Yeah. The fine um, group of detectives and um, PCs. 
It's funny you talk about the TSG, the Territorial Support, because um, because I did an attachment when I was, because you know what it's like when you're young in service. I think I had about, I don't know, maybe three or four years service, something like that. And uh, you're young in service and you just don't really know what you want to do just yet, you know. And um, so I thought, oh, quite fancy the TSG because, you know, I was very fit and used to enjoy all the shield training and all of that. Um but I did an attachment, and again, no disrespect to anybody listening who's ex-TSG. I bloody hated it, honestly. I was so I was so bored um, because I'd come from Clapham, which was just relentlessly busy all the time, and and you had to be, um, you know, the thing with TSG I find in those days was that you were. Um, dealing with everything mob handed, you know, like, so the, the whole carrier would get off the carrier and go out and deal with something. And I thought, I just felt it was kind of overkill a lot of the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think probably, I mean, I, I've had a little bit to do with TSG throughout my career, but, you know, never had the opportunity really to go out in a carrier with them or experience what it's like. But I think right up until when I retired, I think they kind of developed and became not that they were unprofessional but a little bit more mindful of that especially around some of the communities they were policing Mm. and I I know before I went they used to come on onto the uh, BCU and train some of these street duties in stop and search and just really about communicating with people yeah uh, yeah know and how to really get the best out of people in in terms of I suppose treating people with respect mm. you know, getting the job done but hopefully leaving people yeah. with an okay experience of being yeah, yeah. police yeah I I just used to I just used to find it a bit of a cringe really you know when I'd you'd be out and about maybe you know with your colleagues maybe in the area car or something and then you'd see a a TSG carrier and they'd all be stood up they'd all they'd be out dealing with say two blokes in a car and there'd be like seven or eight of them all around the car and I just thought oh is that really necessary you know what I mean it's just it just feels feels that you're immediately escalating things when actually you know you're dealing with something that you would I personally would have been perfectly happy to deal with on my own a lot of the time you know and obviously if someone starts playing up or starts you know getting a bit of an attitude then you can always call for um some support but but really i just felt it was a bit um over the top so when did you take your first promotion uh, when did you go to sergeant oh it, it took a while um on purpose actually because it didn't interest me for a long time um so i mean from from being cid at wimbledon covering the whole of merton and main office and becoming a dc and having a fabulous time on my six-week detective course at Hendon. <laughs> uh. That might be a book. Um, <laughs> I went to uh, the area crime squad um, to continue with all the proactive work. And I, I was there for about um, five years. Um, and after that, I did a complete 360 and ended up um, on Sapphire as a DC um, at Westminster, but based at St. John's Wood. Right. Uh, and I never expected to actually love investigating serious sexual offences. Mm. I absolutely loved it. And I loved getting people to court and getting convictions. Um, definitely the hardest offence in the world to deal with. Um, yeah. Still, yeah. 
But um, in terms of uh, promotion, quite often on the relevance of being on Sapphire at Westminster was we didn't have the resources for there always to be a sergeant around. Mm. Um, so, you know, and sometimes I was the only DC on, or there were two of us on, on the weekends and we might come in on a Saturday or a Sunday after the nighttime economy to, yeah. you know, five or six allegations of rape with, yeah. you know, your golden hour going on, um, or your priority actions, uh, to preserve evidence and, you know, a victim at the end of it. And quite often we had to elicit the help of the CID across Westminster to help us uh, get the job done. Yeah. Um, and which really involved me directing people and uh, liaising with people. Mm. And really, you know, I, I felt quite comfortable yeah. doing that as well and coordinating and pulling things together. So yeah, yeah. I got a taste for it and then I, I did... I did actually fail the sergeant's exam twice, I think. I got oh, better yeah. every time. <laughs> uh, little increments every time. So I yeah. always say people never give up. But, um, yeah, I, I passed the exam and then I applied and it was a local process. So yeah. I was fortunate enough to become a DS. And I stayed at Westminster. Um, and, and so you stayed on, the Suffer, stayed on Suffer, did you? No, I, I went on to the community safety unit, so all things domestic abuse and hate crime. Um, and I worked with some wonderful people there. Still a lot of them are my, my friends. Um, Westminster's a great place to work, and that was based at Marlebone. Uh, so I spent about two years there as a DS, but that, that was after 16, 17 years service. Um, so it spent so a lot of time PC and DC. Just one thing, so I can edit this bit out, don't worry. Um, do you, don't suppose you've got a pair of headphones with a microphone on it, do you? I haven't. I'm not that well equipped. Okay, yeah. not to worry. It's only because when I Is speak, I can... Or... Not really. Yeah. Well, when I, when I speak, I can hear myself echoing in the background. Um, oh, okay. but that's all right doesn't which is why headphones sometimes is better but don't not to worry i can edit this but i um sure. uh yeah so um just it's might be worth just before we move away from that just to talk a little bit about some of the challenges about investigating serious sexual offenses so my my experience of that is predominantly around child rapes and serious offenses but obviously you know i've done my fair share of adult uh, offences as well um, and there's a big um, uh, controversy isn't there at the moment about the very very low level of um, detections and convictions for serious sexual offences um, and combined with um, since the sort of you know Savile cases etc um, a vastly greater number of offences being reported. So you've got a sort of a double-edged sword there. You've got more offences, way not just more, I think it's like, none of the numbers, but it's like doubled, hasn't it, in about the last 10 years. Um, way more offences being disclosed and reported and, con and, and at the same time, very, very low levels of um, conviction. But um, my, my experience, and I... You know, and it's just be interested to see what you think about all of this. My experience, as you said, and you sort of hinted at a minute ago there, says it's one of the most difficult offences to investigate. And there is this kind of myth, I think, that the police 
it's because the police don't care. The reason the it's the reason the reason the conviction rate is so low is because the police don't care. That's the that's the sort of slightly left wing sort of myth around sexual offences. But in reality, that couldn't be further from the truth in in my experience. Um, but the problem is, in my experience, it is fantastically difficult to get sufficient evidence to actually realistically get a charge, never mind a conviction. And half the reason for that, again, in my experience, is that very often, for, firstly, you're talking about an offence where there's only two people who are involved in that situation. And, and so on that basis, there's always going to be one person's kind of word against the other. Um, uh, in, in, the, in the absence of any sort of obvious injury um, or in the absence of very um, sort of damning um, text messages or a video taken of the offence or something to corroborate it. So there's that, the fact that you've only got two people who kind of, you know, who only know, who know what happened. But the big one for me was always that, well, there's two other, two other issues for me. One was that very often, very often, in fact, probably 80% of the time, victims are either heavily intoxicated through alcohol or drugs. And the other one for me is, is often some very late disclosures. So they, they don't tell you, you know, what happened um, quick, quick enough in order to be able to gather the relevant forensic evidence, um, CCTV, track down witnesses, blah, 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 blah. They'll often tell you, you know, for all sorts of reasons, that they'll tell you quite late in the day. I mean, does that, does my experience sound, given that you did this for a long time, does that sound familiar to you? They, they can be issues. Certainly, you know, it takes a lot of courage for a victim to come forward whenever it is, so whether it's within the first 24 hours or 48 hours or, you know, 15 years later. And a number mm. of my cases were historical. Mm. And there's a number of ways with historical cases you can still achieve that evidence and get the case to court and get justice mm. for the victim. The threshold, and rightly so for those accused, but probably more important to me for getting justice for victims is incredibly high. Um, and of mm. course, CPS are the charging authority by the Attorney General. So <laughs> it's incredibly diff difficult. And if the police aren't charging someone with rape, usually it's because it's either a police decision to take it no further action. And mm. as a DI and a DCI used to be the decision maker on that, mm. purely down to the evidence. And it's a misnomer that, you know, people think it's down to belief. It's actually down to evidence. Mm. And when you know, certain evidence can be corroborated or not. Uh, mm. It's also an, a lengthy process, the criminal justice process. And, and we're back in the position now following COVID where people are waiting two, three years for their trial to come to court. Mm. They're living with that trauma every day, only to, you know, with the best will in the world with regards to uh, judges 
and uh, barristers, prosecution, defence, they, they really live in that trauma. They're, mm. they're living, waiting in limbo for their day to come in court. Yeah. Um, with regards to intoxication and, and drugs, it, it can be an issue because, you know, they're your witnesses. Mm. And if, if that, that might cause a, a difficulty with um, clear recall, it does mm. present a problem. But then your witness or your victim isn't only your, your only asset when it comes to gathering evidence. Mm. And it's, it's about, as an investigator, you know, exploiting evidence, having clear strategies mm. and thinking about where they can accrue the evidence from. And in an ideal world, we'd be able to have all the evidence at our fingertips so that we could, you know, um, either clearly say this is no further action or, you know, this should be charged. Mm. Um, Yeah, it takes a lot of courage for victims to come forward um, Mm. and report that they've been raped. it takes a lot of courage, I think, for detectives and police officers that take up the sew it role as well to enter the world of Sapphire. And a lot of people that I've worked with are, are totally um, passionate and committed mm. to it. And it's really the hardest thing in the world to say to a victim of rape or serious sexual offences, you know, sorry, your case isn't going to court. Mm. Uh, as because you build that you build that rapport and you want to get them justice yeah, yeah um but you've also got to retain that level of independence when you're gathering evidence and your, yeah. your role isn't simply to gather evidence to sort of support the what the victim says um, yeah 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 and alleges yeah. happened you you've also got a duty if the evidence points away from that to gather that yeah and present yeah. it yeah. So that, that is really difficult and it's it's really about communication and helping the victim understand that yeah, and yeah. understand the process. But, yeah. you know, it, it's difficult because I know that in the Met, the, the detectives now and the SOITs carry a high workload when it comes to sexual offences. Um, and I don't think relationships with the CPS are as good as they were following... Um, 2015 2016 rv liam allen when there was an issue with disclosure mm-hmm. uh, and and really that has um slowed the system down yeah. uh, and probably has led to people losing trust yeah yeah in the criminal justice so process. so so for people listening who who don't understand what that is and correct me if i'm wrong here this is yeah. where um cases have failed or have gone to um you know appeal uh, on the basis that um, the the police haven't fully um, interrogated, generally speaking, electronic devices such as mobile phones, which we've got to remember now are uh, many computers holding many, many gigabytes of data. Um, but that in itself is a massively time-consuming process. Um, and cases have failed because the defence will say, well, have you looked at every single piece of data on that device and have you disclosed it and the answer to that question frequently was no we haven't not because we don't care but because it's just such a mammoth task is that about right 
Yep, I mean that's that's true. So when I was a DC on Sapphire, the the significance of mobile phone devices was just really coming in. Um, and when you think about it, it's not just mobile phones, but that's the sort of main device you might rely on as an investigator. You know, you've also got hubs, you've got laptops. When when you walk into someone's home, how many devices do they have? And it's all about what's relevant. Um, and since I've retired, I've, I've been doing a bit of teaching around reasonable lines of inquiry, but also setting an investigative strategy, particularly mm. in terms of digital devices and having clear parameters that reflect the facts of the case as you know them. Mm. Um, and I think as long as you record that and you're able to justify it and review it, should that information change, you, you can rationalise why you've only looked at this is just I'll pluck this out of the sky but a thousand text messages as opposed to 10,000 text messages yeah 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 it's, it's, it's all about thinking about people's human rights um complainant victim suspect and defendant um and and you've got to think about their right to a fair trial but right to privacy yeah, yeah. as well and whether or not you know what you're pulling off a phone and presenting to the CPS is really relevant yeah um, so it is really about setting those parameters. So after so after that that case that you you quoted earlier on there, um, there was a pro forma which was produced that I'm sure you had something similar in the Met, and we used one in the West Midlands where we had to get the victim um, or a significant witness to effectively sign away their their authority for us to examine their electronic devices, and and lo and behold. Lots of people didn't want that because, um, you know, um, uh, sometimes people have got some very private stuff on their phones and, you know, and, it, and they don't want you to see it. And that might be absolutely nothing to do with a case that you're investigating. It could be, you know, um, intimate images or whatever videos with ex-partners or whatever. And but obviously when that when that sort of agreement was wasn't forthcoming then instantly you've got a massive disclosure problem haven't you 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 have and i think that's why um early investigative advice and collaborating with the cps at the earliest opportunity is important mm. uh, in the in the real world cps are just as snowed under as the police Mm. and some somehow and I, I know it I know it's happening nationally we have to somehow reach a point where we're agreeing how we work jointly together mm. and I think investing in the training of detectives that are making these disclosure decisions and setting investigative strategies is important yeah the more knowledgeable and more invested they are the more likely they're going to make the right decisions and be able to reassure victims of crime that we are only going to um, present to the CPS and disclose what is actually relevant, mm. uh, rather than allowing um, collateral mm. Mm. to private life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because victims of rape in particular need to be encouraged to come forward and they need to feel confident in the abilities of their detectives. Yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. no taking away from the detectives of, of Sapphire and uh, other safeguarding units 
um, and, and everywhere in the Met actually, um, doesn't matter what sort of specialism it is, yeah. is, is people working really hard, um, not having a break, limited resource. Hmm. Um, I'd like to think that we're going to see a change in that with regards to the subject matter experts that detectives now need to support the, the evidence gathering. So, yeah, yeah. for example, yeah. um, the technicians that download uh, the phones and understand the concept of devices mm. um, in the same way as the lab works with regards to DNA and fingerprints. Mm. Um, you know, it needs to be uh, a lot more rapid and a lot more speedy. Yeah. So I think uh, one of my experiences around all of that is that digital forensics, which all of this stuff comes onto the banner of digital forensics, doesn't it? And yeah. I think for far too long, and this is, you know, forgive, forgive uh, I don't mean to sort of criticise people who work in digital forensics, because I know they do a very difficult and frequently unpleasant and, you know, um, distasteful job having to look at a lot of this stuff. And um, But I think for, for too long, it's been seen as a little empire's where, where people um, jealously guard their sort of technical knowledge. Um, and I do think it's an area of policing that's crying out for, you know, much more automation, really. Um, technical automation that can do a lot of this stuff much more quickly. Um, because if you say to a victim, well, firstly, I'm going to have to take your mobile phone off you, um, which is, you know, it's like someone's right, right arm now, isn't it? Um, and, and, and you might not get it back for like three to six months at the earliest, then don't be surprised when the victim suddenly loses interest in going ahead with the investigation, you know? Yeah, and to some degree, there's there's a great argument in any investment that is going on in the Met around digital uh, forensics, um, and I believe there is, that you've got to be able to access an expert or a way to download, set your parameters and download a phone or a device mm. if you're looking at keeping someone in custody mm. um, and, and having someone you can go to to get that in an evidential format. I know yeah, there yeah. are ways around it, but sometimes mm. you know, CPS want more it, it to be more in-depth Yeah. Than, what you're able to at two o'clock in the morning yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might be able to you know capture some screenshots and give the victim their phone back because of course yeah our phones are precious we keep everything on our phones so how, how does it feel to a victim of serious crime if if you're taking their phone for three to six months mm -hmm. it doesn't really give them confidence in the process and no, uh, no. of course we keep all sorts of things on our phones so yeah you know, I think it's about understanding that and being able to mm. remove that barrier by yeah. being able to turn around downloads a lot quicker than we're able to at the moment. Yeah, well, certainly one of the one of the companies I'm working with at the moment is is um, is looking at this exact area um, and trying to find a way to allow victims to um, of or witnesses for that matter to send the police uh, any sort of digital data. Um, in a very very simple but evidentially kind of sound way um, so yeah anyway listen um, conscious of uh, the time sort of moving through so obviously that was really interesting and you know and you've clearly you know you 
what you don't know about this area of business is, isn't worth knowing. Um, but in terms of your career, um, where did you did you pretty much stay in that kind of area of business for quite a long time then? I, I've dipped in and out of it. So as a DC, um, a DI and a DCI dipped in and out, um, but ten, tended to stay the longest in, in the Sapphire role because mm. it, it, for some reason it, it just brings out some sort of a, a passion mm-hmm. uh, in, in me, um, not that other areas of policing didn't. Um, in fact, I worked at Sutton twice, um, once on Sapphire and once as uh, DCI for the Triborough, Sutton, Bromley and Croydon. Right. Um, so, um, and uh, yeah, it is a good area to work. But I, I also, I spent some time in uh, counter-terrorism as a DS right. after my stint on the CSU at Westminster, which was a whole different world, mm-hmm. um, a whole different language and acronyms to learn and, <laughs> yeah. you know, a lot of moving parts before you could actually have your own autonomy around making decisions and, uh, you know. So that was uh, SO15, SO yeah? Yeah, it was SO15 um, in, it was 2008 to 2010. So Okay, so yeah, quite a busy time then really. There's quite, quite a lot going on, wasn't there? The, the things, I, I, I seem to have arrived after... Seven seven, so it was yeah. a little way after that. It it was ticking over, and you know, I had a team, and we we had on call, and um, had some investigations were, which were really interesting. And I, I was fortunate enough to um, do a tier three interviewing course, um, and also a tier five. Strategic. Was that around? Uh, was that around the time of Lee Rigby's murder? Oh gosh, it was. I wasn't there then. I think it might be. I might have been a bit a bit before that, was it? Yeah, yeah so I think it was a bit to... before then. There were a few things going on, but probably nothing as high profile as that, or um, or seven seven. Yeah. Um, well, that yeah, was. It, um, it, oh, that was two thousand thirteen. So it was a bit after that. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. It it definitely wasn't in my time. I enjoyed that immensely, um, but um, I quite like being at the coal face as well. I, I quite like the idea of volume and yeah. the hustle and bustle of being on a busy borough or a busy couple of boroughs. Um, I also did homicide as well for a while as a deep DI um, at Sutton again, actually. But All right. Pan London. Did you get any, dealt, uh, dealt any interesting murders. interesting jobs on that? Um. I had quite a few stabbings, um, South London stabbings, and in fact, one up in Enfield as well, mm. um, involving, you know, with an undercurrent of, of drugs um, yeah. and and gangs. Um, one, one in Peckham where a, a young lad was chased across an, an estate and... Um, Sorry, I've, so I've got. Can... Sorry, sorry, I've got you back now, but I lost you there for about thirty seconds. Uh, so you were talking about a lad running across the state in Peckham. Yeah, yeah, he, he was he was stabbed. He got um, his um, perpetrators. They caught up with him, stabbed him several times, and uh, myself and um, the SIO and our team, we managed to bring the offenders to justice. Um, but heart, heartbreaking for his family. Um, and, and abhorrent but um 
I, I was on homicide for a little while. I enjoyed it immensely. I was able to become a senior investigating officer as a result of mm. serving on homicide. But when you can compare it to a rape investigation where you've got one DC investigating a rape with a SOIT, but with a, with a murder, you've uh, as a DI or a DCI, as SIO, you've got a whole team. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and you know you've got a whole team performing core roles, dedicated core roles. Yeah. And they're, they're going to get it right. There's there's no excuse not yeah. to. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, which yeah. results in a high um, sanction detection rate. You know, getting justice for um, the deceased families is just so important. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if you put rape and uh, murder side by side, uh, the the volume of rape is higher than homicide. So. I yeah. can understand what the resourcing issues are, um, but it's well. This is one of the uh, one of the things I say, and, and then I would say the same analogy uh, about about counterterrorism. If you actually look at the number of people who are on counterterrorism nationally, and the resources that they got, I mean, they're almost they're sitting in in gold plated um, armchairs, aren't they? Um, they, you know, and I say this as someone who was in counterterrorism for a long time, both in London and then in the West Midlands. But I think it's completely out of balance, the resources that the counterterrorism network get compared with, um, you know, serious and organised crime or sexual offences. And, you know, and I just think it's, I think it's wrong, you know. I mean, I know that uh, there's lots of politics around it. And I know that, um, you know, it wasn't one of my previous podcast guests, I can't remember who it was, said, no government minister ever had to resign because of a teenage boy being murdered. Whereas, you know, the idea that you would have to resign because of a sharp increase in terrorist attacks, that's that's probably something there, isn't there? But it just doesn't feel right to me personally that we've had this epidemic of gun and knife crime in the UK and, and the dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've died, particularly children, and yet counterterrorism units are sat there twiddling their thumbs most of the time. I used to get quite frustrated um, because when I first went to counterterrorism, it it was um, it was quiet, and probably for a good three months I had not a lot to do, and I kept saying, you know, Hammersmith Nicks just down the road, can't we go and help them with some prisoners? You know, and <laughs> I'm sure that went down well. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know. If something happens, we're, we're there, we're in London, we can respond, you can divert us back to CT, but, you know, can't we help the boys and girls at the police station? Um, so it's frustrating when you're new to something where you, you want to be useful and you want to do your job and mm -hmm. you're, you're sitting, sitting around waiting for some, something terrible to happen. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I think, you know, my, my experience of that world is that they, they end up getting throwing doing a, a gold plated platinum plated job on things that would barely get looked at in other part in other areas of policing they've just mm. got way more resources than they know what to do with and um yeah it doesn't feel quite right but um but uh but listen just to move the conversation away in a slightly different direction um um in terms of as you know i've written this book tanga juliet foxtrot all about you know the issues around policing and stuff. What, what's your what's your what's your take on all of this stuff that's been going on recently with PCs, 
taking selfies at crime scenes, the sort of Charing Cross idiots and WhatsApp groups and all of this kind of, what's your, what's your take on all of this? Oh, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, it's certainly not my set of values and standards. And I, I know that the people that are still in, it's, it's not theirs. And probably throughout everyone's service, we've all got different stories about how we were brought up in, in the police service or the police force, you know, and quite often you look back and say, when I was at Hendon. So I remember getting early turns with the drill sergeant, quite a few. Hmm. Um, I wasn't very good at polishing my boots or ironing. Um, and, you know, that, that discipline and somebody just giving you a tug and saying what you did wasn't right and actually hmm. speaking out and challenging yeah I'm not sure so now my latter service whether that happened so much and I think it's so important that people think very carefully before they take promotion yeah you're going to take promotion do it like you mean it yeah part of being a sergeant or an inspector or above is about how you deal with your people Mm. how you invest in them how you look after them but the standards you set and you've got to be prepared to stand up and say that that is the might. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think from my own experience, probably that hasn't been happening so much. I think we've become a little bit more liberal in in Mm. terms of setting those standards. It's all very well having values written on a piece of paper, but who's there to actually say what you said wasn't right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah well, I definitely, uh, I definitely noticed that really, that sort of sense of entitlement that um, if a sergeant or inspector actually took someone to task uh, over something, uh, it was very quickly, uh, it would very quickly be turned into a spurious allegation of bullying or overbearing behaviour on the part of the sergeant or the inspector. And there was just a, I suppose if you could sum it up in my head, it would be like, They've forgotten that it's a disciplined service. It doesn't. It doesn't behave. People don't behave as if they're in a disciplined service anymore. And I think there's a lack of support for um, leaders, sergeant and above, that try and challenge people that aren't doing their job or aren't doing it to a good standard or aren't mm. giving the public the standard that they deserve. Um, and there needs to be more support above. For those um, those leaders mm. with it within the police that challenge that, yeah, and it's so important to challenge it, you know, for the rest of the team that are flogging their guts out to do the right thing for the public, yeah, yeah, protect the public and prevent and detect crime. And if you've got one or two people that are professionally embarrassing them, mm. you know, we could quite easily say in an R day, you know, the the other PCs or the more senior PCs or DCs would square up to us. Yeah. And it would be an inhospitable environment uh, for behaviour like that. It it would be nipped in the bud um, and and just not acceptable. That's not to say it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. It may well have happened. And, you know, we've got social media now to make it more complex, either in publicising it or you know, WhatsApp groups and people are enabled a lot more to communicate in a different way. 
Mm, so it's mm. different. So am I comparing apples to pears? I don't know. But what what is a fundamental are the values of any any service, any public service in particular, and how we treat each other, but also how we um, look after the people that we we serve. Yeah. You know, and as as a Londoner, it breaks my heart to see that the Met Police are in the news every week for things like this, rather mm. than how we can go about solving crime and making London a London a safer place to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we've lost lost the, the our main purpose has been diluted as well. Mm. You know, we're, we're supposed to be dealing with crime, keeping people safe on the roads, preventing crime, looking after the public. And unfortunately, the service has been diluted by um, looking after other services that aren't resourced that well, that mm. are overwhelmed. And I'm thinking about mental health, mm. mental health services, the fact that we're 24-7, you know, so um, yeah. that there really is a diluted response around so social just, So just on that, just on that one, Nikki, and I totally agree with what you've just said, but I suppose what i'm what i'm kind of struggling with a little bit is to think through how we can change that because uh, certainly the strategic review of policing that was published this week made that point uh in the very first page i think of the nearly 200 pages um that that the police are now the first and last port of call for pretty much everything and that means that we're not doing anything what particularly well anymore um and you know and i can certainly think of many many occasions you know at, at, at lots of different ranks when other agencies would sit on their hands uh, and and just it was a case of who blinks first wasn't it you know it, so you would take someone to uh, someone who was a mental health patient who had self-harmed or was in custody for quite a serious offense maybe or self-harmed whatever and uh, clearly a police cell was not the right place for them and um, they needed a urgent psychiatric assessment and probably a, a bed in a secure unit somewhere but but they would just turn around and shrug and say there's no beds and that was it that was it that was the end of the conversation there are no beds we were like well so end up so inevitably the police end up having to um, lodge someone who is a danger to themselves requiring 24-hour permanent constant watches, taking uniform cops off the street in order to do that, um, when, when actually uh, the, the likelihood is that they're probably not even fit to be detained. If it was a crim purely criminal matter, they're probably not even fit to be detained. You know. So, but I, so I just, I suppose the question, that was a very long-winded way of asking a question, but the question is, how do we get other agencies to play nicely and to to actually um you know take their responsibility seriously I, th I think what i like about the people that are in the police still we, we never renege on anyone else's responsibilities as well as our own <laughs> to the detriment of our own responsibilities mm. how, how do we get them well i think that lies uh, fairly and squarely with the government more mm. investment um, better training, growing experience across these services. It is so complex, uh, the whole, and I'll call it the whole safeguarding arena in, in terms of, you know, um, 
how social services are set up no longer reflects how society and the demands of society is set up. Um, so, you know, I, I would suggest as well as police forces, you know, social services need to look at that and, mm. and mirror society and what the needs are. Mm. Sufficient people on twenty four seven, different sectors. So you know, hats off to all these people working in these vocational sectors. Firstly, um, but sec secondly, you know, mental health. There aren't enough beds. Um, you know, the government have changed how we deal with mental health. If I'm going to the end of the eighties to the current time, and I don't think there's any going going back. Um, but when people are in crisis, they should be able to access quickly help when they want help. Um, so it's ever so complex and difficult, needs mm. more investment money. Also, I, I quite often repeat myself in, in saying we need to start early years, children and families yeah. invested in boundary training so that mm. all children, whatever sex they are, understand boundaries and how to treat each other and courtesy. Um, uh, the school curriculum isn't fit for pur purpose in, in society. We, mm. we should be teaching children about managing finances, the working world, vocations, and really how to care for one another mm. and start from an early, early age so that when they become teenagers, they've, they've got a wider viewpoint than the one they've been given currently yeah, yeah. Um, i'll get off the soapbox in a minute i yeah, i know no, it's, um, it's very uh, it's very frustrating though because the thing was you say it breaks your heart and it breaks my heart as well for someone who um still cares very much about policing i wouldn't have written the bloody book i wouldn't be doing this podcast yeah, if i didn't you know what i mean um but it's so frustrating when you read all of this negative publicity um on all these terror horror horror stories and pe people like Sadiq Khan and Priti Patel and politicians, you know, wagging their finger at the police saying, you know, you're all, you know, incompetent or misogynistic or whatever, when actually a lot of this stuff is completely outside the control of the police. And all and all the police are doing is is responding to stuff in real time. And and we're the only people. If you've got a, if you've got a call to a member of the public rings up and says, my teenage son is having a psychiatric episode. He's been smoking cannabis. He hasn't been taking his meds um, and he's kicking off and he's smashing the house up. Then, you know, the police are going to be the people who are going to have to sort that out. Unfortunately, there's no no one else is going to do it, are they? And um, and the saddest thing of all of those things is that whenever someone ends up dying, isn't it? You know, you get someone who ends up having an up and a diner, as, they, as I'd say in the West Midlands, they'd have an up and a diner with the police when they arrive. And then they end up having a cardiac arrest or a drug induced sort of psychotic episode or whatever. And and it, it always feels now that the police are the ones standing, holding the baby, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, um, you know, um, I think the, the news this week about the teenage girl at school that was strip search. Yeah, what the hell was that you know, all about? Well, my, my take on it is it should have been recognised by the people at the school who subsequently phoned 101 to get police presence that this potentially was a safeguarding issue 
Yeah. You know, get mum, parent or guardian up the school and talk it through. Unless that young lady had something on her person concealed to harm herself or someone else, there was absolutely no justification for them to call the police. And yeah. when the police turned up, really, they should have been challenging back to yeah, yeah. the teachers or whoever yeah. they were liaising with the uh, dedicated safeguarding lead at the school. Yeah. Uh, say this isn't right and we can't lawfully do it and yeah i know i just i i read that i read that story with just absolute disbelief i really did i just thought oh my god firstly as you say what on earth possessed the school to 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 involve the police in the first place yeah. second secondly what on earth were the police officers thinking about you know strip searching a child yeah. in a school i mean but for me all day long not only is that unbelievably stupid um, but it's a lack. There's clearly a lack of supervision there as well. You know what? What were yeah. the any all day long? Or any any officer, unless they're completely thick, would would be ca calling up a experienced sergeant or inspector, saying, "Right, we've been called to this. Not sure what we should be doing. What we should do here? What do you suggest?" But so that that suggests to me that you've got absolute, completely inadequate supervision or experience there, doesn't it? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I'd, I'd like to know how experienced they were and whether they were simply told by someone else, do this, and they haven't realised that they, if it's wrong, and, you know, I, I, I'd i be really surprised if they didn't feel uncomfortable when they were doing it or when they were being told to do it. Actually, having the courage to challenge back and mm. say, this is right, I'm not doing it, this is a child. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it's it's not like this child was a drugs importer and um they they thought that you know she she had kilos concealed on her somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, so let's get this into proportion. Let's let's talk to the child and listen to the child. Mm. Um and it 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 reads terribly and, and clearly I haven't read the report in great detail, I've just read bits of it, but they're my views. I'm, yeah. This is how I, I feel yeah. um, about what what happened, and I, I just yeah. think it. For, for me, I think there's probably lots of probationers and lots of people only just out of their probation, and maybe sergeants. The sergeant to PC ratio is is diluted now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I think that's a big issue within the Met. But I'd, I'd say to anyone, you know, if you're going to get promoted, you need to do it like you mean it. Yeah, you know, yeah. you've got to expect, you've got to deal with the culture on the team and individuals that aren't performing and have the courage to do it. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. So yeah, um, just, yeah. Oh, sorry, I've got time for a little bit more, but I'll have to go in a minute. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. No, I was just about to say, I think we're probably done, actually. But um, uh, yeah, just very quickly, um, yeah. you're doing you're doing a bit of consultancy type of stuff now, is that right? Um, I've just started a full-time job with the Red Cross um, as an investigations officer, which is oh, okay. really interesting. That, that's very so. Um, it's uh, it's early days in in terms of um, what I'll be involved in. Um, but um, I, I, in my spare time, I um, I am actually involved in one of the universities with the direct entry detective program. All right, okay. I do a bit of hourly paid. Um, lecturing and I help out there so I, I get to meet some of the new uh, degree holder detectives um, that have to 
have a um, get a postgraduate degree and and do the job at the same time and carry mm. a big uh, workload of investigations which oh, must God. be challenging for them there's probably another whole podcast in that there somewhere <laughs> listen listen nikki um it's been, i've really enjoyed chatting to you it's been fascinating and it's been lovely um you know kind of uh swinging the lamp as they say um but um yeah it'd be great to get you back at some point maybe you know um once you've done a bit of stuff with the red cross it'd be interesting to see what that's all about you know particularly as they've got such a big footprint in ukraine at the moment and uh yeah. there's going to be all sorts of interesting stuff so so listen thanks a million for um chatting to me my pleasure i've really enjoyed it and yeah I'd, I'd love to come back i could talk for hours yeah yeah no it's good and yeah you you really you really know your stuff and that's great and just to caveat what i was saying about rape um i don't want people thinking i was sort of like being negative about oh it's really too difficult blah 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 it's not i'm just realistic that um it's all about the evidence isn't it it's about can can you get sufficient evidence in order to get it past the post and 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 there's far too many people out there so-called opinion formers who think it's really simple and it's bloody not you know it's really hard and i'd invite them to try and walk in the, the shoes of a sapphire dc or so it but i think also i think we need to look at becoming more perpetrator focused as mm. well but that's probably part two <laughs> <laughs> oh bless you well listen yeah. Um, thanks ever so much again and uh, look forward to catching up face to face and having a having a beer or a glass of wine or whatever at some point that'd be great we'll drag John Fox out and uh, we'll just uh, abuse him uh, as he deserves to be oh I think you've just uh, see, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. yeah I think we're losing the signal now we're at the right probably at the right time <laughs> okay brilliant all right listen you take care thanks ever so much thanks Ian look Cheers, after thanks. yourself yeah thanks, take... please... bye 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 Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town.